Hello and welcome back to Pastoral Parsha. I'm Hody Nemus, a third-year rabbinical student at YCT Rabbinical School. And I'm Michelle Friedman, Chair of Pastoral Counseling at YCT. In each episode of this podcast, we explore psychological insights gleaned from the Torah portion of the week. And we also share with our listeners concepts and techniques that are taught in the Pastoral Counseling Program at YCT, where we try to integrate Torah wisdom and contemporary understandings from modern psychology. We start today with the beginning of the Bible, Parshat Bereshit. And our theme is going to be, how do we teach, how do we understand moral values in a confusing world? After all, this is a story of creation, where God creates the world. God makes order out of chaos and makes divisions, binary seemingly divisions between sky, earth, day, night. What about the in-between? In our Parsha, Breshit, one of the most famous stories really in world history, to attempt to summarize it is perhaps a fool's errand since most people are familiar with, with many of the particulars, but I think overall it's really a story about the discovery of morality. And whereas most of the religious texts and the literature we have from that era are really about the search for immortality, our text is about a search for morality. And at the center of the Garden of Eden, yes, there's the tree of life, which can grant immortality, but, but there's also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It starts with one God, right? But as, uh, as we've spoken about, Michelle, there's, there's a series of binaries. There's, you know, there's light and dark. There's night and day, the sun and the moon. Um, and, uh, and things seem very clear-cut. There's an order, and that all sort of gets complicated in the Garden of Eden, when, when humans are created, when gray enters the picture and ultimately culminates with the first murder. So I want to just focus in for a moment on chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, where Eve has been told, Adam and Eve have both been told not to eat of the f- fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eitzadat. And the snake says basically, well, you know, is it true that you're not allowed to eat from any tree? The woman replied to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, about that tree, God has said, You shall not eat of it or touch it, lest you die. So God said, Don't eat from the tree. And here, Eve says, You can't even touch it. Right, so that's a big problem that Eve adds on, which much has been written about, and she seems to be struggling with something. It seems that Eve is pretty unprepared to apply some kind of moral rule or some kind of judgment. That's right. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me, it's very much a developmental kind of story. While Eve at this point, we assume is a woman, she has, she's the first woman and she doesn't have any, there are no parents who taught her anything. She never saw anything. This is it. She comes full born as a, as a grown up, and. But she's childlike. Really, she's childlike. She, they're, they're naked. They're not, That's they're not embarrassed. Right. That's right. And this reminds me a lot of how children learn about morality, how children internalize what they see and what they learn. 
And these are questions about how to raise children with moral understanding, how to make choices that people come to rabbis and religious teachers about and ask questions. How shall I, what can I do to, what should I do to raise a child that is God-fearing, God-loving, is moral, is mm -hmm. principled? So this is something in YCT that we think about in preparing our rabbis for the field. So our question is, how can we help children and ultimately all through life, adults internalize and practice what we consider to be our moral values? How does this change as children mature? And kind of two components of this are the didactic. How do you convey moral instruction appropriately from young children and as people grow up? Teaching, basically. That's right, teaching. And how important is modeling? Mm. Practicing what you preach, walking the walk, doing it, showing you know how to live a proper life. So I want to put on our uh, our moral hats for a moment and okay. and uh, let's say we're trying to give a moral instruction like don't cheat in school, don't lie on your taxes or let's let's take our case right that's here right. in the we're text. We're using Eve as a case study in this in this week's podcast. That's right. Eve Eve is our our moral actor. So don't eat from the garden. That was the moral instruction given to her. Um and I think there, there's probably like four or five questions that, that come into play for somebody who's, who's been given a moral instruction. Maybe it's arising from their conscience, or maybe somebody's actually told them, a parent, a teacher, some authority figure, told them how to act. So, um, so let's take Eve. So you're Eve. So first of all, why? What's yeah. the underlying logic of this rule? Right. I mean, I'm asking you, you've told me not to eat from the tree. Why shouldn't I? It looks good. There's nothing obviously dangerous. Now, that's something I think that kids, little kids, sometimes can see. Now, of course, so much of this depends on the individual child. But some children will either into an obvious meaning, don't walk uh, outside by yourself. They see cars or they understand it's dangerous at a certain age. And sometimes it will be the power of persuasion, the sense of, connection to the assuming adult who's giving them the instruction. Well, mommy or daddy said not to, so mm -hmm. I listen. I mean, kids are variable in paying attention to that. And presumably age-dependent. That's right, dependent. of course, age-dependent. So the older you are. Right. But in this case, me as Eve is thinking, well, this tree looks pretty terrific. <laughs> she and, says it, yeah. <laughs> right. And there's nothing, you know, nobody really said it wasn't very clear what, what's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think you mentioned this, but the next question that would arise in someone's mind, I would assume, would be, who? Who says that That's you shouldn't right. do it? So right. who said? Well, God said in our, in our case. And do you trust God? But is, who is God? What is Eve's notion of God? You know, is God the internalized parent for a lot of us? I mean, when you think about, let's say, the development of personality, we talk about in the classical psychoanalytic theory system of the superego is kind of the internalized voice of the parents or the moral, religious, whatever, cultural structure from which we derive a sense of how the world kind of ideally should work. But it looks like in Eve's case, it was kind of primitive for her. She was, as we said before, an adult, but childlike. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and then I think, what, what are the consequences if you disobey? Right. 
That right. comes up. So what are the consequences? For eating from the tree? Yeah. It didn't seem to be, you know, like the snake was making it kind of convincing. That's right. The snake was appealing to Eve on a much more kind of personal level. He was really seducing, wooing her to try something new. Right. But God has said, the day you eat from that tree, you will die. Right. But, you know, Eve didn't have any... Uh... But what does dying mean? That's right. What, <laughs> what did she know what dying was? Did she ever seen anything that died before? Presumably not. So, okay. So Eve's a little confused at this point, I would say. The fourth question that I would assume occurs to Eve is, are there exceptions? Does this, does this cohere in everything else I know? You know, can I really be sure? And the snake, I think, really makes her unsure by saying, well, you know, are you sure you know what he said? He, you, you say not to touch it. Look, you can touch it. It's fine. Right. And, um, and also God said a general rule. He said you can eat from all the trees in the garden. But then he introduced a little exception. Right. Right. And I, I, I'm kind of stuck on a different point. It's a related point, which is I think that the power of the personal connection is enormous. God to Eve, I'm assuming, is some kind of presence, but not a, a being. The snake is a, a companion. The snake speaks uh, to Eve. The snake has a personality. The snake is paying specific attention to Eve. And that is enormously seductive. We know that from everyday life, that the person who cultivates somebody has much more of an opportunity mm. for engagement, for the good or for the bad. The snake is a friend. That's right. The snake is a kind of I friend and, who's and, paying attention. And of course, she's unsure then if her friend is saying, well, I'm not so sure that you got it quite right. Right. And this is not a stupid friend. You know, this is a friend who seems to be wily and knows uh, his way around. Yes. So most importantly of all, how do you take a moral value like this uh, and then apply it, you know, went to new situations. In Eve's case, you know, when, when the snake raises questions and says, well, are you, you know, can you touch it? Right? And she says, oh, I guess, no, I can't touch it. Okay, going back, you know, our, our question is, how do we teach moral values in a confusing world? And certainly our world is probably a lot more confusing than it was back in the days of the Garden of Eden. So certainly with very young children, where we're watching them closely, and they're only capable of a limited amount of understanding, we say in a firm way, don't do this, or do do this. And we're really banking on the power of our persuasion and their childlike trust in us to do a good thing, to do, to do the thing that we are prescribing for them as good. That's the who. But Who's that's the rule very game? young. Yeah. We're really talking about nursery, young nursery school kids. I think if we don't add to that and give some kind of reason, a reason that's age appropriate, like if we say, well, you, you should share your toy, share that toy with the other child, and this would be for like a two to three year old, not for a year old child who doesn't understand the concept of sharing, but if you say share your child because you'll want to play with a toy that some other kid has sometime, or because it's a nice thing to do, or because that child's in your class, or that child's your friend, or that's another child, or we should all take turns, or whatever the simple moral or logical reason is, I think we need to start offering that pretty early on. And then we need to layer it to give more sophisticated reasons for why you shouldn't cheat on a test, mm. or why you shouldn't uh, break a play date for a last minute for no reason because you just don't feel like it, or you shouldn't 
uh, eat something that's not kosher if that's important to the family, etc., etc. And certainly, talking about our other principle, if parents don't model the behavior that they're preaching, we know how limited the results are going to be. Indeed. So modeling, what's, what are the important aspects of modeling for your children, your students, people around you? I think it's so basic. I think it's seeing that you care enough about this that you're doing it. And I, every day, practically, people in my office are talking about their difficulties detaching from their, it's usually from their cell phones, and they're also talking about their kids' attachment to their own electronic devices, which are usually not cell phones at early ages, but iPads and TV and screen time in general. And you know, we go through this again and again. If you are going to be on your cell phone during dinner, if you're pushing your kid's baby carriage while talking on the phone, that's very early modeling. And it's not modeling behavior that direct human contact is the most important thing. That kid is learning early on in their stroller that what's on the phone is more important, is more interesting, is mm -hmm. more engaging. Mm -hmm. So we certainly can't expect children to take seriously that they should limit their screen time if their parents can't. And you know, Michelle, as a, as a long-time bar mitzvah tutor, I've seen many examples where parents uh, will say, you know, it's very important that our son or daughter uh, practice, study very hard for their, for their bar mitzvah, bar bat mitzvah. We want them to learn a lot. It's very important. But then I see that, you know, they are not modeling through their own lives uh, a commitment to Jewish life. And the kids usually get it. They see it's not important to my parents. In reality, they may talk about it, but it's not important the way they live their lives. And so they're not interested. Right. And even if the parents were to say, this is meaningful to me because it is our family's tradition, they, they parents need to put into words. I'm, I'm so, I think that's so important that people pause and say what's meaningful to them. Uh -huh. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to be one particular kind of practice, but whatever it is that they want their kids to emulate, if they don't spell it out in words in addition to practicing it, I think it loses a lot of the potential power. Modeling is not enough. You have, well, to, you have to talk. It can, it's going to be meaningful, but I think it goes so much further when you put it into words. So let's say if a, if a family's custom is, I don't know, to give tzedakah, to put you know coins into a, a pushka, you know, a tzedakah box. But if you say while you're doing it, this is why we do it, and what should, where should you think we should give the money to? If you, if you start encouraging that kind of dialogue, it goes so much further. So to me, the highest level of, of moral development, correct me if I'm wrong, is the ability to take different moral values that you have and apply them in new situations, apply them when they're conflicting morals. Exactly. And you don't necessarily, you know, you're told not to, to lie, but you're also told to, uh, you know, to, uh, to be kind. Those things obviously can come into conflict. That's right. So um, it seems like the Torah can often feel fairly, fairly black and white. Uh, and, and certainly the beginning of Brace, very, you know, there's light and dark. We talked about that. There's, there's, uh, there's night and day. And, um, and humans get into the, into the gray. So Hody, can you give us some example, or one example perhaps, of how our tradition evolves to incorporate gray? Right, and, and that's, I think, important to, to articulate, that the halachic system is full of gray. It's full of the, the uh, wrestling with different values, different Torah values, and trying to figure out 
how to apply them in new situations. And uh, whereas the Torah can often seem black or white, uh, in fact, our legal tradition is quite, uh, quite gray. And, you know, this comes up in Hefzed, which is uh, all about uh, potential monetary loss. That can, that can play a role in halakhic decisions or, you know, subjective categories around honoring human dignity. You're supposed to have joy on, on Yom Tov. And uh, there's suggestion in the Gemara that that is a subjective category. You can't say what one person's joy is uh, or another person. You have to do something that, that makes you happy. Uh, that's not a, a black and white category. So there's subjectivity in our, in our legal system that can feel lacking when you're just reading, you know, a, a, a verse from the Torah. So it seems like the Garden of Eden was, and the leaving the Garden were a necessary first step and one that needed to be exited in order to create, allow for the complexity, to explain, to understand the complexity of our human existence. So we look forward to exploring the Torah in weeks and months to come and wish you Shabbat Shalom. So, I want to invite our listeners to please give feedback, and if you would like to write to us, use the address mefriedman at yctorah.org.